14 of the Great Escape Minute, the daily podcast, where we dig into the Great Escape one minute at a time. I'm Rob. I'm Tom. And once again, joining us on this lovely Thursday is John of Dirty Harry Podcast. Welcome back, John. Hello, everyone. This is John. Thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So this minute starts with Haynes pushing Sedgwick, and it goes all the way until Hilt's leans down to pick up his bag. We're, we're continuing basically the uh, the argument or setup argument from yesterday between Sedgwick and Haynes, where they're, uh, they're beginning to uh, knuckles, as, <laughs> as Sedgwick says. It, what's, what's really funny is, is the, the pretty much the first line said here is by Haynes, where he says, what are you talking about, you know, to, to try and show that, okay, he's Canadian, and, and uh, once again, they want to try and accentuate. Oh, uh, I didn't pick that up. Ooh. He says... It's mine, you illiterate Aussie swine, right? Yep. Yep. I took them more as Irish. I thought it was supposed to be, it's mine, you Aussie swine. But no, yeah, they're about. No, no. That's very good. But that, that's because um, you're damn Canadian. Yeah, right. I mean, I, that's right. He calls him a damn, damn Canadian, right? No, I, I grew up in Michigan, so I'm, I'm, I, I'm very familiar with the, with the OUTs of, of Canadians. I had a kid in my class who we would always make fun of him about that. And uh, so I'm, I, I've always been conscious of, of that type of thing. I mean, I knew that Haynes was a Canadian character, even though, again, he's an American. <laughs> that, that, that's one of the ironies of this movie, is, as, as we've discussed. You know, most of the actors, most, not all, are Americans, but they, they give them, you know, all these different nationalities uh, to play. Uh, so here's another example. You know, they give an American to play a Canadian, and they just happen to do it a little over the top. So I loved his aboot. You know, in the middle of this fight, you can see in the background that our hero, Danny, who, for his sake, the whole thing is happening. He slowly walks, slips away, you know, from the the whole crowd, because obviously a lot of people, you know, all these all these prisoners are pretty bored. Nothing, nothing, nothing interesting has happened in the last 20 minutes. So, you know, let's just now there's a fight. Let's go take a look at it. And it's an elementary school uh, playground. True. true. (laughs) The commandant said they'd have a theater. Uh, but they also have their own theatre of the absurd in the open well, in, air. <laughs> in the book, they actually do have a theatre, and they have they have uh, plays and all that Gramophones, stuff. Gramophones, yeah, yeah. This this movie doesn't 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 show them uh, doing any real besides uh, the actors acting. <laughs> the characters do you, don't do any acting. Do you guys think most of the the prisoner audience that come around Sedgwick and Haynes? Do you reckon most of them would know it's a sham or? They have no idea of legitimate fight as far as they're concerned. That's really a great question. I don't think they care. <laughs> so, I'm, okay, so here's, and I don't know about you, John, but you know Rob's not a fan of professional wrestling. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not the fan I was when I was younger, but I still enjoy it. And I know it is scripted and that... You know, they're doing things in an intentional way designed to inflict as little damage on each other as they can. I still find it fun to watch. You know, so I imagine there's a thing here where those who know it's a sham are still going to entertainment value of it. And, you know, as well as, oh, well, even if we know it's a sham, if we come over, there's more of us there. We're going to distract the guards. And those right. who don't know it's a sham, well, it doesn't matter. They're blocked to a fight. And maybe right. most of the British amongst them think, oh, you know, the colonials are at it again, the Canadians and the Aussies, <laughs> rednecks, yokels. <laughs> well, the question is, 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 were all the Commonwealth, you know, were, were they in separate units 
based on the Commonwealth, or they were just, you know, or they, they were put together with everyone else, or they had the British units and the Commonwealth units, meaning so that, you know, do you, do you know anything? I think it was a mix. Sometimes there were unique RAAF, the Royal Australian Air Force units that were on their own in North Africa, and and when Greece was invaded, obviously they had to escape there. Um, I think it was a bit of both, though. Like, um, I think uh, Henley, a character played by James Garner, he was in an early Eagle Squadron or something. Is that the English, the Americans who joined up were a unique squadron within the 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 the, the, the English Air War was declared. Um, so I think it was a, a bit of both. Paul okay. Brickell himself, the author, I think, was shot down in North Africa, and he was in a Royal Australian Air Force unit. It was subsumed like as a small squadron or two for the uh, the English Air Force in North Africa, I think. Okay, all right, that's a that that's a good enough answer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Yeah, and then so after Danny slips away, you see that that he uh, joins in with the the whole group of of uh, Russian prisoners or the prisoners. We were. In, I don't remember if we mentioned if they were actually mentioned that they're Russian prisoners or not. Maybe maybe they were. Um, but here you can actually see. That some of them are uh, quite old. <laughs> There's one guy who, you know, reminds me of my grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> but then there are in Russian military uniforms, and actually the guy who he takes the, the, the where he buys the jacket off of or rents his jacket from, <laughs> I guess you can say, uh, actually is in a Russian uniform, which again shows uh, as as most of us know from seeing other movies dealing with you know prisoners in in whether you're talking the regular prison system in jails. Or when you're talking in POW camps, cigarettes are a high commodity to, to, to trade with. You know, he gives him his cigarettes, and the, the best thing is the, the look of the Russian right behind him. You know, who's, <laughs> who's saying, I want a cigarette. You know, why, why is he getting one now? And he's, he's, you see him working, trying to figure out, okay, how can I get one of these also? And then he's like, ooh, I have an axe. <laughs> Maybe you want to take my axe. So the exchange rate here seems interesting to me. So, <laughs> all right. Danny, well, so Danny comes up, and I'm pretty sure he gives the guy with the coat three. I'm pretty sure Willie gave him four. He walks up to the guy, trades three cigarettes for the coat, and then it only costs one cigarette for the axe. I feel like those numbers would be backwards. I feel like the axe would be more valuable than a coat. At least in the current climate, and it also makes me consider what time of year well, again, it is because the Russian. Oh, go ahead. But he's not using the axe in order to to hide himself. So I would think that the coat is more important to him because you know he's using the coat in order to to conceal who he is. The axe is just prop to try to to help move that along. Well, the axe belongs to the Germans. Really, they're going to be put away in a safe spot when they retire tonight. Each night. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really much matter who's got the axe. It'll be in there. different people's hands tomorrow. Yeah, that's true. Also, maybe that's why the the Russian doesn't have a problem giving him his axe because <laughs> he's like, they're going to take it away from you. <laughs> but he gives him two cigarettes, not three. The third one is he puts in his mouth. I wonder how much an official, you know, commandant green packet cigarette would be worth. Maybe one of those proper fruit cigarettes might be worth like ten of the the tea leaf ones they've got here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whatever. Nobody's. Nobody's looking to, to see where this was was made. <laughs> They're like, cigarette is a cigarette. I'm sure the best of all were the American that find. <laughs> oh, I, I, um, I've got all sorts of research on this for later on in the season. I'm just oh, <laughs> save it, save it, save it. 
There's been award-winning economic papers done about the POW camp. Oh. Ooh, very interesting. I'm looking forward to that too. Especially since I know nothing about economics, so you can you can you can talk all you want about that one. I won't have much. I won't have m- many intelligent things to say about it. Can I can I stick up for Australia again as well about the real life person that tried to get in these Russian soldiers and escape? Can I give you a little quote from the the novel? The novel. Sure. What page is it on? So the new It should be on. Pay- oh, have you got it too? I think page sixteen or seventeen. I've got it transcribed. If you want me to read it out now. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I didn't quote it properly. It was based on a guy called Cornish, Cherub Cornish, an angelic little Australian. He didn't shave for two days, borrowed an old Polish greatcoat that reached the ground, rubbed dirt into his face and slipped among Russian prisoners, leaving the camp. At the gate, the German guard countered the Russians and scratched his head. Fifteen had come in, but sixteen were going out. <laughs> So spoilers, um, it might not be Bronson, but uh, Bronson, the person, one one person who did this was an angelic little Australian, apparently. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting here that as as we'll we'll, we'll see shortly, there's just the discrepancy of one. There's more than more than one of that discrepancy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and I, you know, before assuming those are Russian POWs, uh, and maybe we'll get this later too. But what exactly is Bronson's plan once he's outside the gate? Just oh, well, he definitely cares? has to teach. He has to teach Sedgwick <laughs> Russian, I would think, based on few minutes. <laughs> put his language skills to use. Um, that's true. <laughs> yeah, certainly have to think very hard and very quickly about how you are going to uh, lead your proper escape. Getting outside of the gates is one thing. Is unfortunately we learn in this movie is. Only one half of an already insurmountable battle to ultimate freedom. Correct. Right after this, this scene ends, we, we see then Willie, who now is taking advantage of, of the fight also, jumping into one of the trucks with the trees, hides underneath the bunch of trees, which it, it seems like that would be pretty painful, mm. considering these are evergreens. I, you know, they, they, they don't look... <laughs> you know what looks I mean, more again, painful, they're not, looking, they're not looking for comfort, but still... No, what looks more painful, watch when he jumps in. He whacks his hip against the edge of the bed. Oh, yeah. I, I'd be anxious to hide, too. Did you hear what the actor really did in real life? He um, added vo- He added lyrics to the Great Escape theme and released a pot. Um, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> I'd be embarrassed and hide away after that as well. Look it up, everyone. Hey, yeah, one, he, so, and I think this is ridiculous overcomplicated jump number two of the movie because we have Cavendish getting into bed earlier. What was that? Last week where he does the weird... Ali up. (laughs) So I don't understand why these people want to make getting into things so complicated that they do a good job of it. Because they want to make it seem as if it's happening faster. You know, they have to do it quickly. You know, Cavendish needed to jump into the bed to make sure no one else took it because you know there were there were fifty other guys that wanted that 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 particular bed, and here you know, but here it actually makes sense. It really wants to make sure that no one uh, actually uh, catches him with uh, doing that. And so, so we briefly just see Willie there, and then it goes back to the fight scene where we have Frick come to break them up. And I love Frick's line. He yells at everybody and says, "Get back to your huts." They're there for twenty minutes. <laughs> Most of the people are still carrying their stuff. No one's in the huts. You know, still you, orientation you, at the camp. 
That's full, right. Full morning of orientation. Yeah. They haven't even had the orientation. They're still. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. No, that, orientation. that building week had eighteen, nineteen people going into behind Danny and Willie. That was the first wave of orientation. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's true. We just don't know. You know, orientation for prisoners. <laughs> Please proceed to the uh, to the library or whatever. <laughs> and then once again, we get Sedgwick's horrendous accent where he says, "Oh, we're just having a friendly little conversation, friendly little argument." Yeah, once again, that's comes off really Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. We're just having a friendly another argument. <laughs> so. Pretty bad. Yeah. And then the the scene switches back once again to see Hiltz, where we see him uh, still looking at the, the security of the, the perimeter. Now, there's just one other thing I wanted to mention. We're going to back up a second. When, when you see Frick breaking up the, the fight, so you have all these uh, extras standing around looking at what's going on. And uh, did either of you notice that the, the guy all the way to the left, uh, the guy with the crooked hat on, uh, he's carrying something really strange. It looks like a triangle box. Maybe it's a hat box? A triangle it's box. A, Sorry, whereabouts near the minute, pole? The pole? It's, uh, second 35. Yes. Oh, okay. To the, to the left of the pole, the one standing the closest to the barracks. Hmm. Yeah. Now, we, we found some interesting things. Last, last week, we, we found a guitar that someone had, and we found someone with a trombone. Wow. Yeah. Maybe, maybe this course. is an accordion. Maybe this is an accordion. Maybe this is the third guy in the band. Well, of course, in real life, and maybe in the movie as well, Sedgwick makes the pump out of an accordion, doesn't he? Or the real-life um, pump involved in a broken accordion. Yeah. And boot leather for the valves. So in other words, oh. this guy's punishment for standing and watching was because they took his, uh, this, his accordion. <laughs> and then Frick seems to have a lightsaber on the back of his um, his belt as he walks off above of his course. bum. Of course. <laughs> I mean, come on, you always have to have the Star Wars connection. In the greatest game. <laughs> I mean, it looks like it's a one of the one-inch mag flashlights. Right. I don't know. Did they exist in the forties. I don't know about. I think it's a better question if they existed in the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I might take this opportunity to point out that Sedgwick, played by James Coburn, once again, is sort of an amalgamation, as many of these characters are, of um, of three people. One was a gentleman called Albert Jackson, Aussie uh, in the RAF. Who made the compass? The compasses for all the prisoners escaped out of broken records and razor blades. Um, second of all, he was a little bit of a character called Johnny Travis. I think one of you mentioned the original who made the pump from the old accordion. And of course, one of the only one of three people who actually escaped was a, a Dutch gentleman by the name of Bram or Bob Van der Stock, who um, eventually. So that's who Sedgwick is, sort of a combination of those three characters so after research i must admit i was wrong it could not be a mag light on his belt because the first ones didn't come out until 79 wow that's not to say it's not some other flashlight i'm unfamiliar with it <laughs> so lightsaber there we go i'm good with that yeah I'm oh, good with that too. although the world war ii takes a very different turn if the nazis have lightsabers <laughs> Yes. Oh, I found something. Do you know why <laughs> there's the connection between Sedgwick and, and Vanderstock? Because when he escaped, he, he was wore... wearing an Australian Air Force <laughs> Greek, and so therefore go. they decided to change his uh, nationality to Australian. Because I guess they asked uh, Coburn if he can do the Australian accent, and he says, "Of course." <laughs> <laughs> that is a great, great. Not that is that is definitely a great connection. Not tenuous at all, but that's that's good. <laughs> 
<laughs> and also, he spent some of his early life in the East Indies, obviously now known as Indonesia, near Australia. Um, that doesn't mean just because he lived near somewhere doesn't mean you necessarily. Straws, straws, I'm grasping at them. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Australia used to be known as New Holland. So there you go. <laughs> ah, okay. All right. Do either of anything else to, to say about this uh, minute? No. All right. Well, uh, John, you want to once again give your plugs? Please, everyone, check out Dirty Harry Minute at DirtyHarryMinute.com. Also on Facebook, that would be great. All right. And to get in touch with us, you can uh, reach us on Twitter at uh, Great Escape MXM. You can uh, come and talk to us at the uh, our Facebook group, The Cooler. Our uh, website is TheGreatEscapeMinute.com. And our uh, email address is TheGreatMinute at gmail.com. So you'll all come back uh, to listen to us uh, finish off the week tomorrow with uh, John. Uh, tally-ho! Tally-ho. Tally-ho.